The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Matthew 1 is where we'll be this morning. When I was a kid, I remember watching The Wizard of Oz and just just being transported as a kid, right? This sort of fairy tale about a, a girl who steps into this magical land of Oz. And the movie came out in 1939, and the, the special effects were considered groundbreaking then, a little less so now. But there was one effect that when I was a kid, it sort of it wowed me. So when Dorothy arrives in Oz, she steps out of the door, and the film, which had been in black and white up to that point, all of a sudden it sort of just explodes into color, right? You, you feel as if you've entered this fantastic new world. The dull monotone gives way to this vibrant symphony of color. The boring black and white just detonates in this fireballs of red and yellow and green and blue. And I think that might have resonated with me because the first TV that we had when I was a kid was black and white. And saying that makes me feel old. Like we would huddle around this little black and white television and watch the TV show or movie. And when we graduated in the Redberg house, it was a big day when we graduated to a mammoth, I'm sure it's probably like 13 inches, but a mammoth uh, color television. And even though the shows were the same, the content didn't change, everything seemed sort of bigger and better and more amazing. <clears throat> The first 39 books of the Bible, they're called the Old Testament. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are they, They're just full, filled with the promises of God. These just wonderful, life-changing, glorious promises fill the pages of the Old Testament. And then you get to the, the next 26 books called the New Testament, and we're shown how all of these promises are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And the movement from the promises in the old to the fulfillment in the new is, it's sort of like stepping out of Kansas into the land of Oz, like moving from black and white to color. The, the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ is so much better than the original. God's promises, you could say, explode into color in the coming of Jesus. They're just better than we expected. They're more glorious than anyone anticipated. They not only explain the promises of the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus enlivens and exceeds and energizes those promises. And we see this right from the beginning of the New Testament here in Matthew 1. Now, you might not think so when you get to Matthew 1. You know, you, like, you're expecting something phenomenal, right? The New Testament, this is going to be great. And you come to this list of names, I remember in high school literature class, we got to read The Tale of Two Cities and talk about an opening line, right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Like, that's a classic opener. And you expect something like that when you open the New Testament, and what you get is a list of names that are, I would say they're hard to pronounce, but they literally sang them, so apparently it can be done, right? But that, that's what you get. And it might seem insignificant, like, hey, let's skip these first 17 verses and get to the meat of things. Let's skip this list of names. Now, this list of names is called a genealogy. A genealogy is, this, is just a, a proof of a person's lineage. You could say, think about it this way. This is the ancient equivalent to Ancestry.com. It's the proof of Jesus' lineage, but it's more than that. It's also the proof that God is faithful to his promises, now, we're going to study this genealogy over the next seven weeks. We're not going to look at every name. What we're going to do is we're going to pick a few of those names, and we're just going to sort of dive in depth and see the grace of God in certain individuals' lives. But what I want you to see, what we want you to see in this study 
is that God is faithful. He is faithful to fulfill the promise of grace that he makes to his people. This is more than a list of names. It's a monument to the grace of God and his commitment to keep his promises. Now, the focus of this genealogy are two men and one promise. The two men are mentioned both at the beginning and end of the genealogy. So look at verse 1. Here are the two men. It says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David, there they are again, were 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the <clears throat> deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the promises God made to these two men and then see how he exceeded this promise when he sent Jesus. Before we jump into this promise, let me just make a couple observations about this genealogy as a whole. First, this list of names isn't a spiritual hall of fame. These aren't all-stars. This is full of people with checkered pasts. I want you to think about the most, two most prominent figures in it, Abraham and David. Abraham twice told his wife to lie and say, this is not my husband, Abraham is my brother. And why did he do this? He was scared the king would this king of the country that he had ventured into would kill him and add Sarah, his wife, to his, sort of to his harem as, as one of his mistresses. So he said, lie and say, you're my sister. What was his intention? Well, that way, when he still takes you into his harem, he won't kill me. Like, that's not a good decision by Abraham to say, like, let's like, he's just going to take you as one of his mistresses. We're okay with that. I just don't want to die when he does. Not only that, Abraham took one of Sarah's servants and, and took her as a mistress in order to try to have a child. Then you have David. We won't get into all of his issues, but the big one was when he committed adultery and then, then plotted to have the husband of the woman he cheated with killed. And these are probably the two most righteous in the genealogy. This list also includes Tamar. We're going to look at her story next week in depth. But she masqueraded, masqueraded as, a, as a prostitute in a pagan temple in order to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her and, and, and getting her pregnant. And Rahab. Think about Rahab. She has been immortalized with this, this nickname. How do you like it? The harlot. Like, hey, mom and dad, I'm in the Bible. But you may not want to read about it. Like, my nickname for thousands of years is now the harlot. And then you, then you get to the list of kings, and these are the worst of them. These, these men just constantly led the nation of Israel into immorality and idolatry. So this list of sinners is a monument to God's grace because God made promises to these sinners. And he wasn't surprised by their sin. He knew exactly what their sin was, what their sin would be, and yet God in his grace was determined to make the promise and keep it to them. It's not a hall of fame. If anything, it's a hall of grace. And because it's all grace and not works, God can use anyone. I want you to see that. God can use anyone. There's no one that is too bad, no one that is too messed up, no one that is too broken for God to use. And this list of names assures us of that. He can use a king whose life looked like a reality TV show. He can use a woman who sold herself to the highest bidder. Right? As we just saying, God's grace or his mercy is deeper than any sin we have. Second, this list of names is primarily about God. 
This is a record of God's gracious dealings with humanity. The genealogy reminds me of a document that you receive when you take out a mortgage. Now, this is one of the many documents you receive that you, uh, and then you sign and you don't know what it's about. This one's called the, the amortization schedule. Do you remember that one? You, don't, you didn't read it. None of us did because it's really just a number of pages with dates and figures. And, and what it is is that it, it's showing you exactly what you'll pay each month for the next 30 years until you pay off your mortgage. And so when you take a mortgage, what you're doing, right, is you're signing a promise that I am going to do this over the next 30 years. I'm going to pay this figure on this date, right, for all of these months for 30 years. And if you make it all the way to the end, you make it all 30 years, that amortization schedule actually reads like a payment history. It shows you how, it shows how you kept the promise you made at the very beginning. This list of names is God's payment history on a promise he made at the beginning. Each name details this sort of long and winding journey of the promise until God fulfilled it in full. And it wasn't always clear, as we'll see in just a minute, it wasn't always clear how God was going to fulfill this promise. But what we can do is see this list of names and we can sort of look back and see God's faithfulness over time. And that's really what we want to do between now and Christmas. We want to look back together and see God's faithfulness. We want to see his unwavering commitment to keep his gracious promise. So as we look at this genealogy this morning and we examine the promises made to Abraham and David, I want you to see how the fulfillment of this promise, it's like stepping from black and white into color. It just sort of explodes in this sort of vibrant color. We can see four stages in the development of this promise. Here's stage number one, the promise made. Promise made. Now, the story of Abraham, like all of our stories, it begins before we're born. His begins before him. Abraham doesn't appear on the scene until the 11th chapter of the Bible. And so to understand his story, to understand the promise God made, we've, we've got to go back to the very beginning, to the chapters before Abraham. The first three chapters of the Bible, they detail how God created everything. So everything we see, God made, and the crowning, um, the crowning piece of creation was humankind. That God made all these things, but he made them for this purpose because he was going to make humans, make them in his image and place them in this new creation where they would worship and serve and enjoy and delight in him and his creation forever. And he made this world, he told them, so that if they will simply enjoy him and delight in him in this world, that this world will serve them and bless them. And we know how it went, right? They didn't obey him. They rebelled against him, and the story is of how this creation, which was there to bless, instead became cursed, and it became difficult and hard. And as we looked at in Romans 8, right, it's all of everything struggling under this curse of sin. What was the consequence of this rebellion of humanity? Well, it says they were cut off from God's presence and his life. But in that dark moment of judgment, God makes this promise in Genesis 3. He says, At some point, you, man and woman, you're going to have offspring. And one of those sons is going to come and he's going to to defeat evil and he's going to restore everything to how it was intended to be. This is Genesis 3.15. And this promise now guides the rest of the way for the Bible. This sort of sets the stage for everything else you read. And if you don't understand the promise, it's really hard to understand what comes after it. 
Because this promise, it raises a question which drives the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. And here's the question. Well, who is the son? Right? So everything's falling apart and God says, oh, I've got a promise. A son will come and this son's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. And so everything after that is just simply going, okay, who is he? Is he here? Like, where is he? Like, when, when, when are we going to see him? And so this is why genealogies are important in the Bible because this one, like this one in Matthew 1, they trace a line of fathers and sons. And they're always sort of eyeing that question, well, who is the son who's going to come and defeat evil? So in Genesis 11, we find a genealogy. And the genealogy ends with a man named Abraham. Now, the way genealogies work is when you get to the last name, you're supposed to ask this question. So if you're reading through your Bible and you come to a genealogy, you get the last name, you ask this question. Well, is, is he the son? Like, okay, we've seen the line. Is he the son? And so we ask about Abraham. Is he the son? Is Abraham the one? And we quickly find out he's not. But we see, we learn something significant. When God gets to the end of this genealogy, this man called Abraham, he expands a little bit on the promise. And he says, listen, Abraham, this son, which I promised, he's going to come through you, particularly through a nation that's going to come from you and Sarah. So when God calls Abraham to be his out of pagan idolatry, he says, listen, I've got a great promise I'm going to make to you. Listen to the promise God makes to Abraham. This is in Genesis 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says, Abraham, through you, and particularly through the nation of descendants, will you come from you? You're going to bless the whole world. Okay, but there's a significant problem. Abraham's an old man with no kids. So, how would his descendants bless the whole world if he has no descendants? I wonder if at times Abraham felt like my kids would feel if I promised to give them half of my lottery winnings. I don't play the lottery. Right? So it's a, a meaningless promise. I wonder if Abraham felt that way sometimes, like, what good is a promise of a nation if I don't even have a child? Now, we know that Abraham and Sarah, they struggled to believe this promise because they sort of turned to their own ingenuity to try to figure it out. And so, at one point, Abraham and Sarah, they say, well, maybe if Abraham takes Sarah's servant and has a child with her, that'll sort of count, even though that's not what God promised. But in spite of their failure in certain moments to trust God, what we see is their story is this. It's one ultimately of patient trust in the promises of God. That Abraham, at 100 years old, he and Sarah have a child. And God was faithful to them in that promise he made. The second stage of God's promise is that it's a promise expanded Okay, so what, what happens is from the time the first promise is made to Garden of Eden until Jesus comes, the promise, it takes shape through all of these additional promises and prophecies and stories and patterns. For instance, when Abraham's grandson Israel, right, that's key, that is grandson named Israel, right, this nation that's coming from him, when he's about to die, he gathers his 12 sons around him and he, and he blesses them. But to one particular son, the son Judah, he makes a a strange and specific blessing. He says this in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until all tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Now, the context when he makes this promise is that Israel and his sons are in Egypt. They're not ruling anything. In fact, the history will be that for the next 400 years, they're going to be enslaved and slowly become the slave population. And so this is strange that a promise of a king is made to Judah, who's going to die as a resident of a foreign land and his kids and grandkids become slaves in that foreign land. Right? But this is revealing something about that son, that the son is actually going to be a king, and he's going to come from the line of Judah. So not just Abraham as a whole, but specifically one line within Abraham's family, this line of Judah. And so as the Old Testament progresses, this question, who is the son, starts to get filled in with more and more details. So eventually, in the Old Testament, we come across a young man from the tribe of Judah who's anointed as the king over the nation of Israel, the nation which came from Abraham. This young king, David, his story is one of suffering, and all of a sudden, after a period of suffering being elevated, right, that should sort of show us a pattern. And once he's elevated as king, he defeats all of his enemies and ushers in a period of peace and prosperity. And in the sort of the height of this period of peace and prosperity, God comes and he, he reiterates the promise he made to Abraham, but he expands it. And here's what he tells David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. That's really just a gracious way of saying when you're dead. Just sounds a little nicer than like when you kick the bucket. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That's interesting because at this point, there's already a kingdom. But he says, I'm going to establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish... Here, listen to this. The throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so as we come to this genealogy in Matthew 1 and we read it or we sing it or we listen to it, these first 28 names are reminding us of, of this time in human history which began in the Garden of Eden with a promise and, and it took shape in the nation of Israel and ultimately the king from the line of Judah. But then all of a sudden, something happens. And what it appears is that everything goes terribly wrong. And so here's the third stage in development. Promise broken. Now there's a question mark there. So we say promise broken? Because it looks that way. Verse 11 refers to this event called the exile the nation of Israel had fractured by this point into two separate kingdoms. So think about this. God has made a promise, and the promise is that there's going to be this king who reigns forever, and he's coming from David. Then David has a son, and things look pretty good, and all of a sudden, near the end of the son's reign, Solomon starts to go downhill, keeps going downhill, and quickly, it's, this, the nation is just divided into two parts. Ten of the tribes up here, they're the northern kingdom. Then you have Judah, sort of the main tribe, right? The key tribe, it's down here with only one other tribe. So all of a sudden, this, this promise seems to be going the wrong direction. Not a, this, supposed to be this eternal, glorious, universe-wide kingdom. Now it's broken into two somewhat ineffective kingdoms who often lose battles. And it gets worse because at some point this nation of Assyria comes and it, it destroys, ransacks all the northern kingdom and it's just sort of gone. And then around 600 BC, Babylon becomes a world power and it marches into Jerusalem and it defeats the, nation, the tribe of Judah and it, it 
it, it, it just sort of ransacks everything. And so this time of the exile is this time when the nation of Israel, listen, is so thoroughly defeated that most of them are hauled off to foreign countries as slaves. Now, 70 years later, some of them were able to return. They were able to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But the glory days under King David were a faint memory. In fact, we're told this, that when some who remembered the previous temple, they finally made it back to Jerusalem and they saw this new temple, it says they wept. And these were not tears of joy. These were tears of sorrow because, like, how could this be what God had promised? How could this, this sort of, this hastily put together, sort of not very glorious temple. And from that point forward, the nation of Israel was, it was constantly in captivity. Even though the people were there, they were slaves to some other nation. In fact, by the time of Matthew's writing, they're enslaved to the nation of Rome. So this inclusion of the exile is, I think, very significant because it shows us that God isn't bound to our expectations. And God isn't a slave to our timetable. I think it would have been easy, even natural, during the time of the exile to doubt God. Like it had been easy to doubt His promises, to wonder if He was really going to do what He said. It had been easy to, you know, return from captivity in Babylon and look around and think like, really, God? <laughs> I mean, you made promises of a great king and a glorious kingdom and like, this is what we have? We're slaves in Babylon? We, we can't even do what we, 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 want, we think you want us to do? And then getting to this point, maybe asking, what's the point? Like, what's the point in trusting God? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever wondered what's the use? What difference does it make? Have you ever doubted either God's ability or maybe more often His willingness to keep His promises? Maybe that's how you came to church this morning. Maybe it's your singleness. You know that God is in control, that God guides your steps, that He always does what's good, right? You, we just saw that in Romans 8. And you know intellectually it's true, and you would say, well, deep down I believe it, but it right now feels like I'm in exile. And you're just wondering, can I really trust this God who leaves me here? Maybe it's the demands of caring for young, hyperactive kids or moody teenage ones. Like, you know that God says kids are a blessing. It's cross-stitched somewhere in your house. So it's got to be true. And you know that there's eternal significance in parenting and you know, at least intellectually, that he's, every day he's using you to mold and shape these kids, even though it doesn't feel that way. And at the fifth temper tantrum or the fourth slammed door, you feel like you live in Babylon. Maybe it's praying for a child to be conceived. And you read the story of Abraham and Sarah and how they shouldn't have been able to have kids. And we're told that they, he was as good as dead. In other words, physically this couldn't work but yet God gave it to him. But you're like, what about us? Why, why? We've been praying. We've been longing. You, I know you're sovereign. I know your purposes are best. But you're really struggling to believe him. And another month without a pregnancy, you feel like God's forgotten you. Or maybe it's taking care of aging parents. And you feel like a slave to something you didn't want. Like, 
Every decision you make, every choice is sort of constrained by this, this, this situation that you sort of resent. I just want to say, let the inclusion of the exile here be an encouragement to you. Like that God hasn't forgotten you. He will not leave you in Babylon. Like God is faithful to his promises. He keeps his word. Let's look at the fourth and final stage of this promise. It's promise kept. There's no question mark on this one. Maybe it should have an exclamation point. Because after the genealogy, Matthew records how God kept the promise. So that question, who's the son? And it's sort of being shaped and molded and we're seeing more and more details. It finally gets answered here. Remember, you get to the end of a genealogy and you find a name and you say, is he the son? And for the first time in biblical history, the answer is yes. Look at Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Interesting reminder, right? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So just think about this. God promises a son in the garden. He promises a son to Abraham. He promises a son to David. And even during the time of exile, prophets are repeating this promise. And all of a sudden, God gives a son. But when he gives the son, it's his own son. I mean, talk about going from black and white to color. Like, talk about mind-blowing I mean, I think we are so used to the story of Jesus that we don't, we're not as amazed as we should be. Think about what happened in this time when people heard this. What did they say? Well, that can't be true. Why did Jesus, was Jesus called illegitimate most of his life? Because we were like, no way could God do that. Like, that's how shocking and unexpected his answer is to the question, where's the son? God sends his own son to be born as a human. <coughs> Though the Bible doesn't go into detail about how it happened, it tells us what happened. Right? Mary's a virgin. She's never known a man, verse 18. But in the greatest of all miracles, God caused her to be pregnant with his own eternal divine son. Now, there are some who, who don't believe this. And, and one of the reasons they give is because it just doesn't go into detail about the virgin birth, which... In one sense, they're right. It doesn't give us a lot of detail, but I think the answers for that, the reason for that is very simple. How much detail would you need before you'd understand it? Like, what would God say about the mechanics of his eternal son becoming a human being through the Holy Spirit overshadowing that we'd be like, no, okay, I get how it worked. Like, of course we don't get this. How? The songwriter Charles Wesley said it like this. He said, our God contracted to a span. Think about that. Our God, glorious, everywhere. He cannot be contained by human hands, but he's contracted to a span. And then he says, incomprehensibly made man. Exactly. Incomprehensibly. 
But these things, the virgin birth, the incarnation, or enfleshment of Jesus, did happen. It was promised by the prophets, fulfilled in Matthew 1, that somehow Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was supernaturally conceived when the Holy Spirit overshadowed a poor peasant woman named Mary. Somehow God became flesh. You know, if Jesus is God incarnate, then everything else in the gospel story makes sense. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, talks about this as sort of the key miracle because he says, if you don't believe this, then the rest of the Bible makes no sense. But if you believe this, then the rest of the Bible makes sense. It's not hard to believe the resurrection if you believe Jesus was God. If you don't believe Jesus was God, the resurrection seems like a fairy tale. How can Jesus turn water into wine and create bread from thin air and other bread? How can he walk on water? How can he heal and raise the dead? How can he do this? Well, here's a simple thing. He was God. It all hangs here. And so this account, this miraculous conception is here to testify that Jesus is indeed God, that he is not simply the son of Abraham and the son of David, that he is the son of God. Why does God do this? Why does God answer or keep the promise this way? Why send his own son? And he tells us here, so that he could be with us and so that he could save us. These two names, Emmanuel, which means God with us, and Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. This is why God answered the promise or kept the promise in this way. He wanted to be with us. So he sent his son as a human baby. Brothers and sisters, this may be one of the sweetest promises in the whole Bible. God is with us. In fact, Jesus will later reference this promise in a couple of significant places. Later in the book of Matthew, he'll talk to his church about this thing we call church discipline, where we confront sinning, unrepentant brothers and sisters to the point where if they don't repent, we'll eventually remove them from our fellowship, take this drastic step. This is a difficult thing to do. Right? We have had to walk through this process as a church before. It's not fun. It's not easy. But we do it because Jesus says so. But in that passage where he commands this type of difficult obedience, he says this, and where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's not just a generic promise about having home church. That's a promise that's tied to this subject of church discipline. When I call you, Jesus says, to difficult obedience, I am with you. I'm Emmanuel. I'm with my people. Think about how the Gospel of Matthew ends. Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, here's what you're going to do. I'm leaving, but you're going to go out and you're going to take this news, this gospel news, you're going to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Now, we know that this was not going to be easy. In fact, of those 12 men standing there, 11 of them, or I guess of those 11 men, 10 of them were, were martyred for their faith. Only one survived. He was actually boiled in oil and banished to an island. So in other words, this task, this mission that Jesus told them was not going to be easy. And so how does Jesus end this command? He says, and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. He says, I am Emmanuel. I am with you. So he is with us. That's why God answered or kept his promise this way. But also because he was here to save us. 
The only way that God could save us from our sin was for a perfect lamb to be offered in our place, and that was Jesus Christ. He had to have been God to die in the place of sinners. Friend, do you understand this? That all of this is so that God could save you from your sin. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into this, some of the stories of grace that we see here referenced. But I want to end this morning with just a few reminders about the promise, sort of the overall promise of grace that's recorded here in these list of names. Just a few things about it. First, the promise of grace is personal. It's personal. See, all of the names listed here, these are people, real people, historical people, individual human beings. Each one of them had mother and father, grew up from infancy to adulthood, made decisions to obey or rebel against God. Though God's grace operates globally, it also operates personally. It always comes personally. Now, we live in this sort of strange time of of global connectivity in the The fascinating thing about it is the more connected we are globally, the less connected we often feel, the more isolated we feel. In fact, as we connect with people through social media and other forms, what we actually feel often is more and more insignificant, more and more alone. In our daily lives, when we look around and see all that's happening around us, our daily lives can seem insignificant, sometimes even pointless. And this genealogy, what it reminds us is that God cares about individual lives, that he, that he knows names, and not just the names in the headlines. God knows the name of every single person made in his image. He sent his son to rescue a people. Adam talked about that last week, right? We are a unique people, a nation of priests, but this people is made up of individual people. One person's life matters. Every person's life matters, not because of their accomplishments, but because who made them. When God lovingly formed each human being, he made them, it says, in his image. And so we look at every life and say that life means something. No one, no matter their background or ability, their intellect or genetic makeup, no one is worthless. And so this reminds us that lives, individual lives matter and the thing that each individual life needs more than anything else is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So sometimes when you don't feel seen, like look at this genealogy and remember that God sees individual people. That Jesus died for individual people, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells individual people, that grace is personal. Second, the promise of grace is undeserved. Too often religion is seen as something we do in order to earn something from God, and so we go to church because that'll make God happy. We, we sort of think of God like the kindergarten teacher with the, the chart, and she puts all of the gold stars based upon your behavior, and that, that's sort of what God's doing. He's watching, and gold stars, and if you do good enough things, then, then maybe you earn or merit some sort of loving attention or at least happy thoughts from God. But that's the exact opposite message of the Bible. The Bible makes two things clear, that you and I are far too broken to earn God's approval. And that God graciously gave us a way to receive his approval apart from anything we do. 
The theme that runs like a river through the Old and New Testament is grace, that the favor of God comes to the undeserving. Look at this list. This is, there are some serious scoundrels here. There are some people who are messed up in ways that will cause us to blush. But God is gracious to sinners. If God were not gracious to sinners, then God would not be gracious because sinners is all there is. So on days when you struggle to trust God, you struggle to do what he says, on days when you make stupid choices and say hurtful things, don't forget that God's grace is for those days. That God's opinion of you, if you're a Christian, does not waver based upon your behavior. That God's grace, as we have sung and read over and over today, is greater than your sin. And third and finally, the promise of grace is certain. You know, there are some times when a promise, it's easy to see when it's kept or when it's broken. But there are some promises that are too big and too comprehensive to judge immediately. For instance, when a husband has stood at an altar and he's promised a lifetime of love and commitment, when has he fulfilled that? Now, there are some ways, right, in which he fulfills that every day, or he should. Get up that day and love and be committed. But that promise as a whole is not fulfilled until either he dies or she dies. And I think this promise of grace is similar. That God's grace comes to his people every day, but it's not finally and fully fulfilled until the end. Now, we live on this side of the first coming of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus. And and though we do and we're we're thankful to, I think we can identify with Abraham and, and David and these Israelite exiles. They were waiting for the sun to come and we're waiting for the sun to come again. They were waiting for the sun to defeat evil. We're waiting for him to expel evil forever. And so we've seen how God was faithful to keep his promises in this genealogy. Now, let's be honest, though, for a minute, right? Isn't it a lot harder sometimes to see how he's keeping his promises to us? But this is why we look at these things and why we read them, and why we study them, and why we remind each other of them. God's grace did not fail them. It's not going to fail us. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you will never lack the grace you need for that day. And you will one day experience grace that is full and unfettered and free. So there was, there was a commercial just many years ago. As I was thinking about this, it was probably maybe decades ago at this point, because it was, I think the, the point of the commercial was a, a color copy machine, which I know doesn't seem all that amazing, but 15 years ago it did, something like that, a color copy machine, because copy machines made like black and white ugly copies. And so the, the way the commercial goes, at least as I remember, is there was this, this small color printer in an office somewhere, and, and the ink started, the color ink started to link, leak out of the printer. And it was just sort of like everything was sort of dull and gray, but it was sort of vibrant ink. And, and you, it sort of traced the ink as it leaked down the side, went down the floor, sort of went through the walls, and, and it started to drip out of the ceiling to the, the floor below. And it just happened to fall on a copy machine. So colored ink, picture it dropping on this copy machine. And 
the copy machine had been making these ugly black and white copies, probably spreadsheets. I know Don Curry loves spreadsheets. I think they're ugly and lifeless, right? So that's why it's making these ugly, lifeless copies. And all of a sudden, boom, like colored ink hits it, and, and, and there's this change. And all of a sudden, the, it starts shooting out like color photos. This is how old it was. We don't even print color photos anymore. We just look at them on screens, right? But back then, it was a big deal to print your own color photos, right? Are you with me, old people? Like, this is what we did. Like, so everything changes. And, and then it sort of seeps everywhere. And this, every, like, these people are sitting at their desk, and it's sort of dull and monotone. All of a sudden, they start, like, getting excited and working and smiling and singing. And, and the, the walls start being covered in color photos. And, and it's just sort of this idea that, that this little bit of color transformed this depressing landscape. Here in the first chapter of Matthew, here's what we see, that when the vivid grace of Jesus Christ soaks into our lives, it changes everything. Like everything is transformed. When we see that God answered or kept his promise this way by sending his own son to be with us and save us, that everything starts to change. Nothing remains the same. So if God promised a son and the way he kept the promise was by sending his own son, what can I not trust him for? If God was faithful to a liar like Abraham and an adulterer and murderer like David and a rebellious nation like Israel, will he not be gracious to me? The simple list of names which opens the New Testament is a reminder of the faithfulness of God in keeping His promises, and it's a monument to the glorious grace of God demonstrated through sending His Son, Jesus. Father, help us this week as we struggle to believe You. We struggle to have faith, and it may be our circumstances in fact, I think maybe if there's someone sitting here, one of my brothers or sisters who is struggling to just hold on, they're just struggling with faith. Even hearing today, there's this war going on inside their heart saying, in one sense, I know this is true, and on the other hand, can I really believe it or does it apply to me? And in this tug of war, Lord, I would ask that this grace of Christ soaks in right now. And that through your spirit, you assure them of your love for them and your faithfulness to keep your promises. As we look and consider how you are faithful in unexpected ways, faithful to the undeserving, faithful even when it appeared as if, you, as if all hope was lost, may it encourage us to trust you, to remain faithful in all circumstances. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.